Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and uh, we pray that all of us would have healthy habits of Bible reading and prayer ourselves. But we thank you also that we can hear you speak as we meet together at church each week. Uh, we thank you for this wonderful picture we've had of the, the start of the book of Acts with the spread of the gospel. Uh, and we pray that today we'll similarly be encouraging as we look at Acts 3 together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's funny how some passages of the Bible trigger memories for you when you read them, and uh, this one does that for me. Before we went to Bible college at the church where I became a Christian, at the church where Victoria and I uh, were, uh, we used to sing a song in the Sunday school based on the miracle in today's story. Uh, and it's an old, old Sunday school type song, but some of you might remember it. I started singing it this morning, and it was like half the church joined in with me. We had a great, it was like a revival was happening. Uh, so I'll sing a bit because of this. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. Do other people know? You got the clapping bit. That's good. He asked for some arms and held out his palms. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none. But that which I have give I thee. But in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of syllables there. Zerus, rise up and walk. But then, don't go in. Don't go in. Then it gets to the chorus, which goes like this, and he went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping. Anyway, in our Sunday school class for that part, all the kids, we'd get them to get up on their chairs and leap off their chairs to show they were leaping and praising God. But on this one particular Sunday, as I was singing it, one of the kids jumps off his chair, falls over and breaks his arm. And uh, I can tell you, uh, he did not rise up and walk straight away. There were uh, lots and lots of tears. And uh, his parents didn't seem to get the irony. They didn't seem to appreciate the irony when we explained that their son had broken his arm in a song about healing a lame man. But uh, anyway, because of that, I always remember this story. So when it came up, I thought, I get to preach. And I just couldn't stop singing. So I thought I'd share it with you. But in any event, it's a story worth remembering because this is just a wonderful moment uh, it's part of what we're seeing, and I hope you've seen this over the first two weeks of the book of Acts, uh, that uh, really what you see is this triumphant march of the gospel. That's how the book of Acts starts. The gospel just goes out. You saw the day of Pentecost last week in, uh, in chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And just like a throwaway line in chapter 2, it, it, it just says, and thousands of people were converted in one day. Imagine, that would be a great thing to share at the big day out, wouldn't it? One day we had thousands of people converted. But then, even more than that, uh, it says every day new people were being saved. So it was like they met every day, and every day there was someone new who'd become a Christian, which is just incredible. The church had gone from 120 people at the start of Acts to thousands of people in a matter of days. Uh, pretty incredible. More than that, though, it was thriving. If you look, I don't think you looked at it closely last week because it's such a long chapter, but you look at verses 41 to 47 at the end of chapter 2 from last week's passage, and it's this picture of just a thriving church. It's gatherings together full of committed people, uh, loving one another. They were all devoted to listening to the Word of God, listening to the Apostles' teaching, devoted to praying for one another. They shared their lives with each other. It's a wonderful picture of what the church should be. And now, even miracles like this one happening at the start of chapter 3. And as I say, it is a wonderful, almost triumphant picture of what God was doing to establish his church in the world. So we're going to look at it together. We're going to start with the miracle. I've called this first section the power of the gospel. This is verses 1 to 10. 
So here, you already know the story because we've read it and sung it. But anyway, here, here are Peter and John, two of Jesus' apostles. By this time, they were the key men. They were the, the two leaders uh, of the apostles. And on this afternoon, they were going up to the temple to pray. Now, that's actually quite significant. It's an insight into the early church. You see, they still went to the temple because they were Jews. They didn't think that they were starting a new religion they were continuing on with all that God had promised from the Old Testament. So they were like, you other Jews need to come to know the Messiah, Jesus, like we have. So it was natural that they would continue to go to the temple and they'd go twice a day to pray. And, and then in verse 2, on their way up this particular afternoon, they meet this crippled man, tells us he's been lame from birth. So this is no sprained ankle. Uh, this man had never walked. So obviously what happened is his, his friends would carry him up each day they would place him there in this prime spot to beg. Because if you think about it, if, if the entryway into the temple, if people going up to the temple to pray aren't going to give you something, then who is? So that's why he's there. But you've got to understand that how hopeless his situation was. This was his life, totally helpless. No social welfare system in the ancient world. He was totally reliant on the generosity of other people just to live. And so he sees Peter and John coming. He asks them for help. Now, I don't think he was singling them out at this point. It's not, he's not thinking, here's two apostles, here's two Christians, they should give me money. He wouldn't have known what a Christian was at this point. He had no idea, but he asked everyone for money when they walked past. And so he asked Peter and John, and that's where the story gets interesting. Come to verse 4. It says, Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. I think that is just a great line. He's expecting to get something from them. He's expecting a couple of denarii, a couple of coins, maybe a silver coin even. Well, he's going to get something, but far more than he ever dreamed of. Look at verse 6. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. And taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up, stood and started to walk. And he entered the temple complex with them, walking, leaping and praising God, but not off any chairs. Uh, it does make you want to get up and jump though, doesn't it? It should, because it's pretty amazing. Uh, but it's just such a great story. Now let's think about this miracle though. What do you notice about it? Scan back over verses 1 to 10. What do you notice about it? I hope you see this miracle is very much like Jesus's miracles. It's actually exactly the same as lots of miracles Jesus did. It's instantaneous that the man's limbs are healed immediately. There's no medical rationale for what happened. Jesus' miracles were with a word or a touch. Well, so is this one. And that is actually really, really important because there's a reason this miracle is exactly the same as Jesus' miracles. And that's because this is still Jesus' miracle. You see... It's really important to see that Peter and John don't claim any credit for this. They don't, they don't say, look at what we've done. They want to stress it's not our power at work. Look again at verse 6. It says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. When you looked at chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, I think Josh shared it with you. I, I hope he stressed how Acts is not a new story. How, how Acts is, is the continuation of the story of Jesus carrying on from Luke's gospel. This is making that same point. Yes, now the miracles are through the apostles, but it's Jesus who healed this man, not Peter, not John. It's a bit like, you know, when the billionaire makes the big donation and they send their secretary along with the big check to, to, to hand it over. No one there says, gee, that secretary's generous, aren't they? 
You, you know where it's come from. Well, in the same way here, if no one here is meant to say, wow, Peter and John are amazing, they're meant to say, Jesus is amazing. It's Jesus who's giving this man life. Now, why does this miracle happen? Other than that Peter and John were struck by the man's need. Two things, I think. First is, as I've just said, it validates that the apostles are continuing Jesus' ministry. The apostles, especially Peter and Paul, they do a number of miracles in Acts. We're going to see Paul in a few weeks. But they do a number of miracles in Acts. And each time, it's to say, we are speaking for Jesus. It, it validates who they are and what they're doing. See, they, it confirms, we are continuing Jesus' ministry. That's the first reason, I think, they did this miracle. But secondly, like so many of Jesus' miracles, this is an acted-out picture of the gospel. Whenever you see Jesus' miracles, generally the main reason he does it is to actually reinforce his words. It reinforces his gospel. It reinforces what he's teaching. You see, in the same way that Jesus gave this man life, because that's what happened, it gave him his life, well, so does the gospel give us life. In the same way that Jesus saved this man, so Jesus saves anyone who turns and trusts in him. Just by the by on this, people love to make big argu arguments from miracles like this about how we are called to go and do the same thing as Jesus. I, I don't think that's the point here. Uh, we, we're not called to go and heal the lame and, and, and so forth. Uh, it's not why this miracle is here. We actually do go and care for the poor and we do go and care for the sick as Christians. The reason we do that is because Jesus said, love people. Love your neighbour. That's the reason Christians go and care for the poor and care for the sick because we love people as Christ first loved us. But we're not continuing Jesus' ministry in the same way that the apostles were. If you take something from this story, it's not go and heal lame people, which you'll probably find you can't do anyway. Uh, it's make sure as you love people that people know that it's because of Jesus that you love them. That's the point to take. Make sure that as you love people, they know that it's in the name of Jesus that you love them. See, what good is it for, for people to think that Lama is a lovely, generous guy? It, that makes Lama proud. I probably shouldn't have pointed you out there, Lama, but yeah, he is a lovely, generous guy. But what good is it for people to say Lama's generous unless they know he does it because he loves Jesus? You see, then he gets the glory, not Jesus. Whatever good we do as Christians... Whatever love we show, we do it so that Jesus' name is known and glorified, not so that our name is known and glorified. Come back to the story, because the story doesn't end with the healing. As this man is walking around the temple complex praising God and jumping around, the people are amazed because they have walked past him a thousand times. They've thrown coins in his cup. Uh, and so they're like, wow, what is going on? What, how is this possible? And so they're amazed, news spread spreads, a large crowd gathers and just like last week at Pentecost, Peter once again sees this as an opportunity to move from the miracle to what really matters, which is telling people about the man behind the miracle, our Lord Jesus. So my second heading for today, the second part of the story, the message of the gospel in verses 11 to 26. So here's Peter and John, they've got all these people, what do you do when lots of people come and see you? You preach the gospel, that's what they do. Now, there is so much in these sermons in Acts, just like last week. Uh, was it Ben that came and preached on Acts chapter 2 last week? Now, I'm sure he, he would have done a great sermon, but he could only have touched on everything that's in Acts chapter 2 in the time we've got. Same with this sermon in Acts chapter 3. Understand this, these two sermons, last week and this week, 
are the first Christian sermons ever preached. See how amazing that is? I think it's pretty incredible. These are amazing moments. These are the first sermons preached after the resurrection of Jesus. So they're pretty amazing. So I can't deal with everything, but I want to draw out three big key points of what Peter has to say. The first is this. Notice that it is all about Jesus. Look at verse 12. It says, when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. So the point from before, he said, don't give us the credit. It's Jesus we want you to come to know. We're just the channel. Jesus is the one I need to tell you about. Just as an aside there, remember that when you share your story, you know how we share our testimony as Christians, about how we become Christians. Sometimes I hear Christians sharing their story and it's all about them. And that's nice and that's interesting. But when we share our story, it should be about how we have come to know Jesus. He's the focus of our story. And that's what it is here. And do you notice how he just packs in so much about who Jesus is in this little sermon? Uh, I've got five different titles he gives Jesus in this short speech. Look at verse 13. He calls him the servant of God. If you know your Old Testament, you know the book of Isaiah talked about a servant who would come and suffer for the sins of humanity. He's saying that's who Jesus is, the one you've been waiting for. Then, verse 14, he calls him the holy and righteous one. That's a title for God. He's saying something incredible about Jesus at that point. He's saying this, this man is more than a man, he, he is God. Thirdly, verse 15, I think the most incredible, he calls him the source of life. See, he's saying Jesus is more than a man. He was there when God created the world. You only have life through Jesus. Then even more than that, you only have eternal life through Jesus because of his resurrection. Jesus is the source of both this life and eternal life, if you like. Fourthly, verse 18, he is the Messiah. He is God's promised king and saviour, the king, the Old Testament promise. Then lastly, at the end of the passage, it tells us that he is the great prophet, that Deuteronomy but that Moses in Deuteronomy promised us would come, the one who would speak for God and who you must listen to or you will never know God. Now I could spend an hour unpacking each of those titles. I'm not going to do that because we've got dinner after church and we'll all be hungry, but that's for another day. The point is, it's this Jesus that Peter wants people to know and who we must want people to know. Understand this, the gospel is not a philosophy for life. Our message is not rules for living. Christian religion is not actually a religion. That's just a false word. It just doesn't describe what Jesus was on about. First and foremost, we do not have a better way of living to share with people. We have a person to share with people. See, we share the good news about the person of Jesus. We want people to come to know Jesus, who is God's servant, who is the holy and righteous one, who is the source of life, who is God's Messiah, who came to save us. That is our gospel. See, we want people to come to know Jesus like we have come to know Jesus. So let's take every opportunity, like Peter and John, to tell people about Jesus. Second thing, remember I said three things I want to point out. Second thing. The gospel demands a response. I think what strikes me more than anything else as I read Peter's speech here is just how bold he is. It's funny, I've preached this sermon across all our different congregations and all the Bible readers 
Sarah was the best, by the way, of our Bible readers, just to give you a wrap this here, of all the five I've heard. Uh, but they're all really well-mannered when they read. Peter was yelling at these people. Peter was yelling at them. He was calling them names. He is horribly offensive. There was no toning it down for him. He is preaching in Jerusalem. Think about this. He's preaching in Jerusalem to the crowds who about a month earlier, a bit over a month, had killed Jesus. And he wants them to know what you did was awful and you are guilty and you need forgiveness. But how to say it like he does takes a lot of guts. Look at some of the things he says. Look at verse 13. It says, The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. See what he's saying? Don't blame the Romans. Pilate was going to let him go and you guys yelled out, crucify him. Verse 14, he says, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. Do you remember the story? of Barabbas, how they cried out, release Barabbas, not Jesus. Give us the murderer rather than the man who never sinned. And then I think verse 15 is the most powerful. You killed the source of life. Is this just a powerful statement? You killed the one who gives us life. It's no wonder next week we're looking at how Peter and John got arrested after preaching this sermon. Now, this is not a model of exactly how we are meant to share the gospel. So if I hear that any of you have gone down to the station tomorrow and you've got yourself a microphone and you've yelled at people, you killed the source of life, uh, we'll have words. Uh, Those specific sins were of that people at that specific moment in time. That's what Peter was dealing with them and their sin. But at the same time, to preach the gospel faithfully, we have to confront people about the reality of sin. Because to become a Christian, you have to understand, I am guilty before God. To come to know Jesus, you have to recognise, I have rejected the God of the universe who gave me life. And I deserve his judgment. See, we need to hear that our sin means God had to send his son to pay the price on our behalf. And that takes boldness to share that message, doesn't it? Because some people will not like it. Do you know, at our life course, and sometimes I'm the preacher... But on the second week, every time, whether I'm sitting in the, in the group or whether I'm preaching it, I feel uncomfortable. Because in that second week, we say very clearly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We explain sin and guilt before God. And that is a very countercultural thing to do in a world that just says, affirm me, tell me I'm right, tell me I'm good. Some people will not like it when we preach the true gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul says, the message excuse me, of the gospel, will be the stench of death to some. What he means is some people will say, I hate that. But here is the thing, remember always, it will be the aroma of life to others. Like it has been, I pray for you. And so to share the gospel, ultimately we have to do what Peter did. We need to invite a response of repentance. See, Peter doesn't just say, I want you to feel guilty for the sake of having people feel guilty. Sometimes I think Christian preachers think that. I I haven't succeeded unless everyone goes home guilty. I hope that's not the case. He wants them to move from their guilt to knowing the answer to their guilt. He wants them to do what he's done and repent. Because remember, he denied Jesus too. It's interesting when he says, you denied Jesus. He denied Jesus. But he wants them to do what he has done and repent and turn around and put their faith in Jesus. Look at verse 19, the key verse. Therefore... 
repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Do you know, we haven't shared the gospel with someone until we've told them how they can benefit from it. To become a Christian is to repent. To become a Christian is to turn away from our old way of life, that's all repenting means, turn away from our old way of life with living with ourselves as the decider of what's right and wrong and turning to trust in Jesus and follow him. Do you know, I sometimes though I talk to people who've been around church for a long, long time. They know all about Jesus. They know how he died for sins. They know how he rose to life. They know how he defeated death. They know the Bible is the word of God. But they are not converted. They are not saved because they have never repented. They have never made that fundamental change to say, I now trust in Jesus and Jesus is my Lord. Now I live to follow him. I pray you have repented and turned to Jesus. But if you haven't, come and talk to me quietly. Come and talk to Josh quietly. We'd love to talk about it together. But for all of us who have repented, who have turned to Jesus, we need to pray for Peter's boldness, don't we? Isn't that our response to this? We need to pray for that boldness that we would have the courage to set forth the truth of the gospel. We would have the courage to invite people to come and hear the gospel. Pray that we would have the courage to tell people the truth, the courage to invite people to repent and turn to Jesus. Well, we've seen that the gospel is all about Jesus. We've seen it takes boldness to preach the gospel and invite people to repent. But lastly, and this is the reason Peter could do this, lastly, the gospel is the most beautiful news. I'm just going to say as I start this bit, it's all right for you to agree with me in, at this part of the sermon. I just want to say that, just at this point. Because what this is, is the most wonderful news. So yes, Peter makes this incredibly bold call, but he also shows them three wonderful blessings for people who turn to Jesus. Firstly, look at verse 19. Therefore repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out. Isn't that just the most wonderful picture of forgiveness? It's like our sins are recorded on a whiteboard, and Jesus comes with the eraser and just wipes them out. Except it's much better than that because whenever I ride on a whiteboard and rub it out, I can't ever get it to rub out. It's always still there and you can see it on the board. Not so with Jesus. He leaves nothing behind. As far as the east is from the west, so far does Jesus remove our sins from us. I know we talk about it every time we meet. But I want to say to you, please do not ever stop realising how wonderful the forgiveness of Jesus is. Instead of facing God's judgment like we deserve, our sin is wiped away. And if you think about it, if that offer can be made to people who killed the source of life, then it's available to anyone, isn't that right? More than that, Jesus also offers the second thing, times of refreshing. Look at verse 19 again. Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God doesn't just forgive you, he refreshes you. See, I don't think we're meant to define this precisely, but it's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the fact that of everything you receive when you come to know God, uh, that awful burden of wondering, could I ever be good enough for God, is taken away. We have the joy of knowing God as our Father. We have that joy that comes from knowing God is in control. Whatever happens. It's this that means the Apostle Paul may say to us, don't be anxious about anything. 
because we know this. The gospel doesn't just offer a future hope. Sometimes I talk to Christians, it's like the gospel just offers a future hope. No, it offers a release from the burdens of this world now. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But of course, those times of refreshing are because Jesus does offer us a future hope, and that's the third blessing Peter talks about. The final thing, the return of Jesus and the restoration of all. Look at verse 20. It says, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. So yes, we have refreshment now through Jesus, but we long for Jesus to return. That's why Christians pray, come Lord Jesus, because our world is broken. If you haven't seen that on the television over the last two weeks, as you see those earthquakes in, in Syria and Turkey, as you watch what happens in, in uh, the Ukraine or things like that, our world is broken with pain and suffering and sickness and evil, and we cannot fix it. You can't fix it with education. Our modern world likes to think, if you just educate everyone, it'll get better. No, we just get better at working out how to be bad to one another. That's what education in the end achieves if it doesn't fix the heart. And social reform, as good as all those things are, they can only ever deal with the short-term symptoms. But when Christ returns, he will bring a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, where there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more evil. That is what we look forward to when Jesus returns. That's why Christians pray, come Lord Jesus, we long for the day you return. That's what Jesus offers us. He offers us total forgiveness of our sins. He offers us refreshment of our souls now and a certain hope that cannot be taken away from us. Brothers and sisters, isn't that the most wonderful news in the world? Remember I said you're allowed to respond? Isn't that the most wonderful news in the world? Sometimes I wish we had a tradition that was a little more vocal in its response. (laughs) But isn't that why you've repented and turned and trusted in Jesus? Isn't that why we long for every person to come to know Jesus like we have? And of course that is why we jump and we leap and in our culturally appropriate understated way (laughs) why we praise God like the lame man in the story. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of your gospel that for those who turn and trust in Jesus, we can know that our sins have been wiped away. We can know that refreshment that comes from knowing you as our Father through the gift of your Spirit, and that we look forward to a day when Christ returns in glory and brings a new creation where there is no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears and no more sin. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the boldness of Peter to proclaim the hard news of the gospel, yes, but also the wonderful news of the gospel. And we pray that you would help us to offer that hope to anyone who would listen. In Jesus' name, amen.